You're listening to the Better Than Fiction Bible Podcast. I'm Gandalf. I'm Matt. And I'm Nathan Van Horn. The Bible is the most read book ever, but for many, it is merely fiction. Join our conversation as we connect the dots to reveal that the story of the Bible is not only true, it's better than fiction. To learn more about the show, visit us online at betterthanfictionbiblepodcast.com. Welcome back, faithful listener, to episode nine of the Better Than Fiction Bible Podcast. And once again, I am very glad that you're joining us, even through all these episodes, even up to episode nine. And as we are recording now, we have just crossed the 400 subscriber mark, which is an incredible number that, if I'm being honest, I didn't think that we would reach when we first started this project. And that's all thanks to you guys sharing, liking, subscribing to this podcast, and most importantly, recommending it to your friends, like actually verbally recommending it to your friends. Every time you do that, it's bringing another person in and that makes a huge difference. So thank you for that. And uh, you know, so many people have told us on a weekly basis um, what they're getting out of this. This is not like a seminary classroom, but it's also not like a Sunday school class. And uh, we just wanna say, we have the same sentiment. This has been so exciting for us to be a part of. Uh, We are learning new things each week just by being in conversation with each other in fact, it's funny how some of the episodes, you know, like today's episode, I originally thought we were going to cover the rest of Genesis 2. And then as we began unpacking uh, some of the significance of uh, the material, uh, now our grand aspiration is to get through one whole verse, Genesis 2.15. Uh, so we came up with an idea. And as you're listening to episodes, if something jumps out at you, it might be a question, it might be a rebuke or a criticism, whatever it is, uh, go to the website, betterthanfictionbiblepodcast.com. And just shoot us a message through there. And we're going to have, uh, probably when we finish Genesis 3, we're going to do like a, a video uh, session where we just interact with some of the feedback that we've gotten and address some of the questions. Um, and just, uh, we hope, uh, we can't possibly cover everything in, in each episode. We've been uh, more and more aware of that as we've gone. But we hope this uh, stimulates, you know, your brain and your heart to explore the word Uh, further. And uh, with that, uh, Matt, let's hop into today's one verse that we're going to try to cover. Actually, it's a little more narrow than that. We're going to look at one verse, but it really zooms in on one word. Now, Well, I had high hopes, so. (laughs) Yeah, and it's just just reaffirm what you just said. I mean, we were going to go for several verses, perhaps even tackle the whole rest of Genesis 2 in this episode. And it was through some preparation and research um, on this passage that this stuff started jumping out at us and then it just was spurred on by our conversations as that we had in preparation for this as we kind of uh, fleshed everything out. But we're going to be in Genesis 2.15, Genesis 2.15, and I'm just going to go ahead and read it. Uh, the scripture says this in Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Now, a couple of things before I point out the, the one word we're going to first hone in on is that perhaps, you know, you've listened to our previous episode. Now, I understand one of the reasons that the podcast is growing is that we're getting new listeners each time. So if this is your first time listening to a podcast by us, uh, first of all, welcome and thanks for giving us a shot. But I think it would 
you might find it beneficial if you'll go back and listen to previous episodes, which are available. And last episode, we talked about what Eden is, that Eden is the go-between between heaven and earth, or it is the place where heaven meets earth. Uh, Gandalf talked about the, the whole Venn diagram, the, the overlap, and that's what, he, that, that's what Eden is. It's not just a, a place on a map, but it's rather it's something that's more significant than that. It's, it's natural and it's supernatural. So remembering that that's what Eden is, and we talked about the mountain imagery, that Eden is on a cosmic mountain, the go-between between heaven and earth, and that's a theme that flows throughout the Bible. With that in the backs of our minds, we want to take a look at this Genesis 2.15 and actually focus on one word initially. Uh, I already read the verse to you, but the word I want to focus on is just a three-letter English word, put, P-U-T. Now, it may sound like really strange. Why in the world are we talking about just one little word here? Well, it might be helpful if we backed up in the scripture to verse number eight. In verse number eight, it says this, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. So, I don't know if you're catching that. We'll talk about some other details surrounding that in a little bit. But first, think about that word, put. The Hebrew word there is seem. In verse what, 8. Yes, seem is in verse number 8. And the word in verse 15 is nuach. And Nathan, why don't you explain to us the difference between these two words? Because if we're reading English, it just looks like the same word. But in the Hebrew, they're different words conveying different things. That's it. So uh, the the Hebrew word in verse eight, seem, uh, is about a spatial relocation. Uh, it's it's taking something that was one place, and you know, uh, changing its location, putting it somewhere else. Kind of like moving from point A to point, moving something from point A to point B. Exactly. Uh, in verse fifteen, it certainly involves that concept, but there's more to it. In fact, uh, you have some context. Uh, where this verb, uh, which is sometimes translated rest. Um, so, uh, you know, it makes me think of uh, Newton's law, an object remains in motion or at rest. Um, it's, it's something that's being acted on and established. It's being taken from one place and established intentionally in a new place. Um, so we will get more acquainted with this word in a different form because in Genesis 6, we are introduced to a character by the name of Noah, whose name is just a noun form of this verb. Uh, so the world around Noah is chaotic, but Noah, uh, who is righteous in the eyes of the Lord, uh, he's, he's at rest, right? Uh, and it's interesting because as the Noah story unfolds in Genesis 8, Noah has been in this ark, but as the waters recede from the earth after the flood, guess what verb is used? In Genesis 8, 4, the ark comes to a rest, and surprise, surprise, it's on top of a mountain. Um, so we, we'll see, see this verb uh, again and again. We'll, we'll visit several examples in this episode throughout the Old Testament. It's, it's interesting how often a mountain is involved. Uh, so, for example, in the giving of the Ten Commandments, uh, in this instance, nuach is used uh, interchangeably with another word for rest, Shabbat, uh, because when God gives the Sabbath command in Exodus 20, uh, verse 11, uh, that's the word that is used, um, nuach in that context. Okay, so there, the references to these words used over and over again, this is kind of like what we're talking about with Chekhov's gun, the, the gun over the fireplace. This is being this is being used as a way to cue listener in to remember other things. Absolutely. 
Uh, in fact, it's it's interesting. Uh, you know, we've talked about some Chekhov's gun, uh, the return to water imagery, the return to mountain imagery. Uh, I would say, Matt, uh, you might want to correct me here, but I would say you also have uh, wilderness imagery or pilgrimage imagery that keeps coming up in the Bible where God takes people through it from one place to another place and establishes them there, right? Yes, and one of the things I want to add is that some might push back in this moment and say, wait a second, you're reading a whole lot into just one little three-letter word, P-U-T. <laughs> that just seems like a, a whole lot. Are you, are you sure you're not just trying to, to work things as you see them? In fact, what was what's the phrase, Nathan? Remind me. Oh, uh, uh, lexically, that would be called an illegitimate totality transfer. Bless you. <laughs> uh, it's, it's where you read where you read the entire range of what something can mean into every instance. Right, and that doesn't mean that the entire range is always helpful in every situation. But one of the things that we do find out with throughout the scripture and the way of discovering these checkoff gun moments, and this is something that'll reoccur throughout this podcast, is the way of identifying them are number one, themes, but number two, it's common vocabulary. And the reason we're pointing this out is because the writer of Genesis in verse number eight uses seem and then switches or expands his meaning in verse number 15 in Nuak. So it's, it's the, the author has intentionally done this and the fact that it's tied into so many other passages, this whole idea of rest. In fact, we talked before the episode, Nathan, uh, Psalm 95. Yeah, Psalm 95. And, and just so I'm understanding you correctly, uh, so you're saying in verse 8, the emphasis is on placing him in the garden. Uh, you, you have some kind of development in 15 of why he's placed in the garden is what you're saying. That's That's what I'm saying. So verse 15, the word put there is, think of it in a establishing someone in rest, because this is how the word is going to be used. For instance, when Israel is brought out of the wilderness into the promised land, God promises to give them nuuk, give them rest, establish them in rest. This is not talking and that's, about that's neat because the they'll break, they'll break the covenant and he'll put them out of the land just the way that when Adam and Eve break the garden uh, commandment, he puts them out of the garden, right? So, oh. yes. And so th here's what's interesting Man is born, born so to speak, because he's created in the wilderness. Now, the wilderness is... Because he's from dust. He's from dust. The wilderness is outside of Eden, so it's on the other side of the veil. Frankly, that's where we are today, outside of Eden. That's from where we are made, and then man is brought into Eden. So in the wilderness, because we're going to find out later in Genesis chapter 3, it produces thorns and thistles. In the wilderness, you have to scrape to make a living, to provide for yourself. But in Eden, everything is provided for you. So man is put into the Garden of Eden where everything is provided for him. And by the way, this is going to be the theme when God talks about bringing the people out of the wilderness into the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, not saying that they will not work, but they're, they're not going to be scraping around for existence, but rather that God is going to provide for them and their work will be an enjoyment. Their work is stewardship and, and worship, and we'll get to that. Uh, sure. So, Matt, you, you mentioned the wilderness, and you also mentioned Psalm 95, even though I you know 
uh, sidestep the question for a moment. It's so interesting. Psalm 95 ties together two big images. It ties together creation imagery, and I encourage you to read that passage. In the early uh, verses, you'll see God as the God above all gods. So you have the polemic uh, dimension we mentioned. You have God over uh, the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains. There's that holy mountain imagery that we've mm -hmm. mentioned. You have God forming things with his hands. There's Genesis imagery. But as you get toward the end of the uh, psalm, uh, it says, uh, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah. This is that wilderness generation in Numbers. As on the day at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. Uh, notice voice and seeing. Those are also Genesis things uh, from the creation. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And that word for rest is just a noun form of the verb that we're looking at today. So look what's happened. This is God speaking about the generation that he took out of Egypt and he was taking to establish in the promised land, but because of their unbelief, despite what God had said and despite what God had shown, they do not enter that Edenic state of being at rest. I think it's pretty incredible just hearing you read that psalm and talking about all that imagery that once you're cued in to the Chekhov's gun, the existence of these elements and these themes, this imagery, you start to see it everywhere in the Bible. You start to see the connections between, you know, the illusions of rivers and mountains and watery places and wilderness, it happens over and over again. And that's one of the cool things about doing this project is I've been rereading all this stuff and seeing things that I have not picked up, you know, even though I've read them over my life, you know, dozens and dozens of times. I think that's really cool. We are acutely aware that we are not the first interpreters of Scripture. And one of the biggest places that we take our cues from is how does the Bible use the Bible? Um, one passage that comes to mind for me is Isaiah 11. Uh, this is a forward-looking passage. Most scholars recognize this is eschatological. It's looking beyond what God had done to what God would do. Uh, this, uh, this passage expects Messiah. It begins, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And I would encourage you, as you work through that passage, you will see how much uh, of the Genesis imagery is there, but right there in verse two, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest Nuach upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Uh, and this is looking to, uh, you know, again, the coming of Messiah. And what's so interesting is you see uh, when Messiah comes, the world works the way it worked in Eden. The wolf will dwell with the lamb. The, sh the shepherd will lie down with the young goat, the calf with the lion, and the fattened calf together, and a child shall lead them. Uh, what's so interesting is you go through that passage. Uh, in verse 9, it says, They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It's right back to where you started. It's looking forward that God is going to do something. We would say that's ultimately in Christ. God is going to do something that restores what was lost in Eden, where that man was placed in a place and a state of rest. So another detail that we alluded to just a few moments ago is that man is taken from the wilderness, that his roots, so to speak, are from outside the garden. God 
takes him and puts him from point A to point B. He's outside the garden on the other side of the veil is where man is created. And then he is brought in to the sacred space of Eden through the veil, so to speak. And God establishes the man on his mountain garden. So this whole idea of resting on the mountain, God has brought him from his roots, which is the wilderness dust, and has established him on the mountain garden. And this is going to be the theme that flows throughout the rest of the scripture. But it goes even one step further. Not only does it talk about man's roots here and that God has rested him on the garden mountain or the mountain garden is that God has also given man the enjoyment of responsibility that man is to keep the garden. He is to tend the garden. And that's the third thing that we really want to talk about. And this is the theme that when God, again, when you think about the the whole children of Israel going into the promised land, it they weren't just to go into the promised land and do whatever. They were to go in there and bear fruit to establish it. Yeah, the neat thing there is at the end of Joshua, uh, it's you have language that almost captures Eden, right? He says, Behold, I give you cities that you did not build to live in and vineyards that you did not plant. Yep. Here in, in Eden, in Genesis 2, God has made the habitat and he's also established the garden. Man doesn't plant the garden. He's put in the garden, right? Right. Uh, Matt, one thing I, I want to bring out that you're, you're saying um, is again, look at verse eight. Uh, look at the development from verse eight to 15, uh, listeners. Uh, uh, in eight, he's put in the garden and it just focuses on the formation of man. In verse 15, ironically, it's when he says that he rested man in the garden. You know, there's the new act. It's, it's, it's rest going not apart from work. It's rest going with work. So that, that strikes us as a paradox, at least, if not a contradiction. Matt, how in the world can rest not be antithetical to work, but how can rest and work go together? Well, so I think we're not there yet, but for those of us who know our Bibles, we know that Genesis 3, that there is now a curse on the ground that makes work hard. For instance, the curse that is put on Adam because of his sin. Now there is a sweat. There is a, uh, that is a toil that is associated with work that was not initially placed there. The word here that's used in Genesis 15, when it says the Lord God took the man and put him or rested him in the garden of Eden to work. This word here in the Hebrew can also be understood. It's not necessarily just toiling or tilling the soil. It can be understood as in the sense of service. Think of like a sense of serving and worshiping because it's the same word that's going to be used later in the story. In Exodus chapter 3, and verse number, let's see, it's Exodus 3 and verse number This is where God is appearing to yes, Moses in the Yes, God appears books. to Moses. Yeah. 3, verse number 12, here it is. And he said, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I've sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God. That word serve is the same word from Genesis here that's speaking of work. Serve God on this mountain. So this, and there's the mountain again. There's the mountain and this whole idea of work, its service, 
Now, this is differentiated from what Gandalf talked a few episodes back about the ancient mythologies where the human slaves essentially just serve the lazy gods. This is not that kind of work. It's not an enslavement, but rather it's a work of enjoyment. God provides everything for his creation and then gives him the enjoyment and the fulfillment of work without a curse. Another polemic. Yeah, that is. That's right. It's another polemic. It reminds you of what's said in Genesis 1. Uh, before God ever gives them you know, the commands, God provides them what they need. God gives them the food and then says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Behold, I have already given you every seed bearing plant for food. Um, what's interesting, since you mentioned Exodus, uh, someone pointed out uh, this to me when we did our Sabbath episode. They said, uh, what's so neat about the Sabbath, Nathan, is that God provided for the Sabbath before he commanded it. And they said back in Exodus 16, uh, when God is uh, you know, outlining how manna is going to work, God already tells them then, before he commands them not to work on the Sabbath, he, already com- uh, he, he outlines the manna and says, on the sixth day, I'm going to give you double the amount you need so that you don't have to work on the Sabbath. And then when God is giving the Sabbath commandment in Exodus 20, as we've already mentioned, he says you can rest on that day, and he uses the word nuak, which we're looking at here. So God has a system of rest, and work that go together. Not They're not antithetical. This is not let me get my work done so I can take a rest. This is a restful type of work. Then in, then in a sense, Matt, would you say it's fair uh, to say that this is actually worship? Yes, and it also helps us understand when we're thinking about salvation as revealed by the New Testament, when we talk about good works and what role they play in salvation. Now, the three of us are Protestants, and we believe that good works are, are the fruit of genuine salvation. Rather, we don't believe in that good works produce salvation itself. We're not meriting our salvation. But a, a, the genuine mark of faith is good works, that we give evidence that we truly believe And so those kind of works are not a duty. They're the outflow and the overflow of who we are. And what I'm saying is that connects back into Genesis here, that the outflow and the overflow of who Adam is as the man placed in God's garden is good works or the tending of the work of worship, or just to put it as the Westminster Confession says it, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. This is not work to fight for man's existence. Man is not working to fight for existence. God's already given him every tree and every fruit of all of the trees in the garden, minus the tree of good and evil. But he has provided everything for man. This is work given for man's enjoyment. That's it. They're, they're, not, they're not put in opposition. Right. Or if we wanted to, to borrow from... Uh, uh, desiring God, uh, God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. It's actually kind of interesting that there's so much emphasis talking about Adam's place in the garden is to work because most of the time, you know, if you open up a children's picture book Bible, it always kind of depicts Adam just kind of like lounging around. Like the the conceptualization <laughs> <Naked>. of paradise. <laughs> he's just like naked dude. And he's just like, oh, yeah, that's a that's a giraffe. And oh, that's a dog. He's and, just naming animals. He's just kind of lounging around. And, and it's funny you mentioned that, Gandalf, because um, 
we we have a very underdeveloped because this is not stuff that gets talked about enough. Um, we have a very under undeveloped or underdeveloped uh, sense of the beginning. And because of that, we have a very underdeveloped sense of the end. This is the same reason why when people envision heaven, they envision people sitting on clouds, maybe playing a harp. Uh, when biblically, the imagery uh, is a return to an Eden-type state. Uh, this is exactly what we find in Revelation, and we'll say more on that in days to come. But uh, we're putting so much emphasis. Uh, God knows from the opening pages the story that he is telling in Scripture. God gave us the Bible he wants us to have, and we're convinced that the better and more clearly that we see the beginning of the story, uh, the better we can interact with and enjoy uh, the story as it unfolds and the more we can get out of the ending. So before we wrap up for today, I, the, the takeaway we want you all to have is that what is Eden? It's the place where heaven meets earth. So what does that mean is there? If we're putting together the last few episodes, that means not only are Adam and Eve, we haven't talked about her just yet, but that'll be for uh, a couple podcasts from now. But, we'll get there by episode 16. <laughs> no, <laughs> sooner than that, sooner than that. But anyway, Adam and Eve are in the garden. Also, the spiritual beings are in the garden. Uh, we've talked about that in previous episodes, that we're going to find a cherubim there. Uh, also, I can think about, for instance, when Adam and Eve send, God says, who told you that you were naked? Presupposing their interaction with other beings. Again, that's we've already talked about the other beings, the spiritual beings, who they are. I don't believe other humans were there. Uh, but th again, he Eden is the place where heaven meets earth. This is this mountain garden. Think of the courtyard off of the palace of the king. Man is there to enjoy it, to tend it, and to exercise dominion over the earth from this place. God has brought him out of the wilderness, and he has rested him in this palace-like garden and established him there for good works. That is the setting. That is the scene we should have in our minds. And so when we think about the mountain, God resting him on the resting him on the mountain, it really reminds me of a song that uh you know, if I don't know if you're a lovers of country music, but um I'm a Vince Gill fan and uh Love. I don't love country music, but I do know the song. Yeah, go rest high on that. I mountain. actually sang as I actually sang the song as part of a trio in a funeral one time. <laughs> but I mean, again, I I know it's uh, it has religious themes, it has uh, theological themes. I know it's uh, a secular song, but however, there's some imagery there. There there can be songs that whether or not the author even realizes that. They're conveying theological themes. If you use biblical imagery, there are theological themes captured in these songs. Like, for example, I, I talked to you all um, in the previous, no, it wasn't a previous episode. We were just talking uh, in preparation. A song that I was always taught as a child was theologically shadow, shallow, which was I Could Sing of Your Love Forever. I rem I've, I've heard pastors make fun of that song in sermons. Um well, I don't know Delirious, the group. I don't know the depth of their, you know, their theology. I, I don't know their intention behind the song. I don't know that I knew they wrote that. Right. But because they use biblical imagery, there is amazing depth, whether intentional or unintentional. Over the mountains and the seas. Yes. Your river. Yep. Runs oh my with goodness. love for me. You see it? Yeah. 
this is this yeah. is Eden imagery. So God, who is over the mountains and the seas, has established this river of life that is flooding over and filling the earth, and that our response into what He has done is that we could sing of His love forever to serve Him in worship. So I don't know if Delirious meant that intentionally, but that supposed theologically shallow song, if you understand the imagery of Eden, is amazingly rich. Matt, what was that song that you alluded to, the country song? I don't think you said Oh, the Go Rest High on That Mountain. Go Rest High, well, just for you. Matt, you can't hear this, but right now, as we close, it's playing for our listeners. Just a little snippet. <laughs> okay. For you. Gotcha. Well, well, very good. Well, there was a lot of stuff we talked about today. Uh, Gandalf, anything you want to add? No, other than the fact that I just love this project. I love recording this with you guys. And like we said before, once you're cued in, once you see all this, this imagery, you start to notice it everywhere. You're just tripping over it in readings of the Bible. And it's just, it's, I think it's a really cool thing. And next week, we're going to go ahead and move on. I imagine we'll move on past verse 15 next week. And uh, some of the groundwork for a, a major event that you guys may know about is coming up. So once again, I want to remind you, if you like what you heard, please leave us a like. Please give us a subscription. And if you have anything you want to say, be it positive, negative, exhortation, or a condemnation even, go ahead and leave it on our message board at betterthanfictionbiblepodcast.com. And we'll see you next week. Shalom. God bless. Yeah.